a Highline podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. We are here on a truly beautiful Friday. Yes. The sun was shining. 70 degrees. I had my windows down. Mm-hmm. I know you did. Oh, yeah. I was like, I, I got in my, my car and it was hot. Yes. Isn't that a good feeling? It's a good feeling. Because <laughs> like when I drove up to the job site today, it was like 28 degrees. Mm. <laughs> it was cold. Yeah. I was bundled up. And then you leave and you're sweating and you're like, let's go. Yeah. People fishing all along the Gallatin. Yeah. It was gorgeous. Mm. No complaints. And that kind of sums up the week. It was a nice week. It was kind of a nice week. It's like chill. I mean, it just, yeah. I, I literally blinked and it's over. Yeah. Agreed. Went way too fast. <laughs> but you know here we are i feel like i've been uh just like plugging away kind of tirelessly for the last like year and a half <laughs> i feel that i feel that so much and uh i realized last night that after we record this episode mm-hmm. i can kind of like relax for a couple weeks nice which i'm excited about yes like very excited about. Got an op-ed out. Did a radio interview on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And then we're recording this. And I can chill until I go to California. Right. Which is next week, right? Which is next week. Yes. Easter. So. Just... Fun. Good. Yeah. It's a good feeling. Very good. I feel like every weekend's been full of like prep stuff. Mm-hmm. I ain't got no prep because I did it's it all. Vacation. I realize I haven't gone on any vacation since... 2019 February. Oh my god! <laughs> You're due for one, oh, I was my like, friend. Wow, I need to go do something like <laughs> chill. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> so this was a good work week for you. It was, yeah, yeah. Good. I, I like kind of took for uh, Wednesday off. Okay. So I like worked a few hours in the morning, then met with somebody, and then like did a little more work, and then. Went dancing. Oh, lovely. So it was like, it was like a nice midweek reset. Mm-hmm. Got a little bit of this stuff, whiskey bench stuff done. Yep. Started the process of my taxes. Well, Ooh. I've already started, but threw another hour at my taxes. Nice. I always push it to the very end. And you already know I'm too cheap to pay someone. <laughs> <laughs> mine are thankfully fairly straightforward. Yeah. Mine are too, honestly. So that was... Uh, not too bad. We're kind of set up there. Nice. I uh, I did my taxes. I think that was this week, or maybe it was last week. Um, and I'm only getting six hundred dollars back. Mm. <laughs> like it's just getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> Isn't that because great? I'm making more money? But I also like don't actually really make any money. Right. <laughs> I'm in that like I'm not like poor poor. So I don't qualify for anything. Yeah. But I'm like actually like in real terms, like not 
well off at all. <laughs> um, did you? Did I end up sending this meme to you? I can't remember who I sent it to. Um, with like no. the Chad guy and the monkey. <laughs> I haven't. Seen so you've got like Chad dude, uh, talking to an orangutan, and Chad says, "You're such a dumb animal." The monkey doesn't respond, and then, uh, and then the monkey says. You pay 30% of your income just to stay out of prison. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little painful. I mean, literally, I'm taxed at around like like 25% of my Mm -hmm. paycheck goes to both federal and state. Yeah. And then if you live in Bozeman, you know, like 30 to 50% of your income goes to housing. Well, we yep. need housing, but <laughs> I know it sucks. Right. I just feel like $600 is like insulting. You know? Yeah. It's like, like really? It's, a, it's enough that you don't want to be like, just keep it, you filthy animals. Yeah. Like, but- I mean, I'll take it, of course. <laughs> but it's just like, ugh. there was one year when I was, uh, for a variety of reasons, wound up being unemployed and transitioning in between colleges so i had like this epically long summer where i was quote unquote fun employed Mm. and uh (laughs) i've been like working multiple jobs and like helping take care of my brother who was sick and then eventually i was like full-time just helping him out and then he like got better and left and went back to china and i was like i don't have a job um and eventually i got another job but i remember that year i wound up getting like like four or five thousand dollars back on my tax return. Holy moly. And I was just like so rich. <laughs> it was great. I remember I literally went and I opened like a new savings account when I got the money. And then I like took my friend to my favorite restaurant, Manuel's, and was like, drinks on me. It's <laughs> like living it up. The good old days. Nice. <laughs> oh, that's wholesome. I like that. I'll never get that big of a tax return again. No, never, never. <laughs> and I, I, uh, don't get taxed on anything all year. Oh. And so then I got to write a big old chunky fatty check to the gov. That must be hard. It's really hard. (laughs) Can I ask like ballpark figure of like where you're, how big that chunk is? Uh, I set aside 25%. Okay. And then like last year, cause it was a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, Wow. And I last year, like just because I had a ton of write-offs and I bought a ton of tools and everything like that, I came out pretty good. So it ended up being like seventeen percent. Um, so we'll see what I can get away with this year. Yeah, I write everything off. Man, that's one benefit of being self-employed. My favorite story is buying that bougie coffee maker <laughs> and writing it off. It's for the uh, the I, home office. I use it every <laughs> single day. Before I go to work, there you go. You cannot tell me no one and no one would be able to argue that that is anything other than a work expense. <laughs> you do need the coffee to I, fuel your I work day. I need it to function because yeah, I'm dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> oh, taxes! But uh, yeah, it's that magical time of year. Taxes are coming up. Mm-hmm. Lent is almost over for you. Uh, when is Orthodox Easter? It is the week after Easter. Okay. So I think sometimes it lands on the same day. It just depends on, I don't know. So it's like the 23rd. Okay. 
There's still like three weeks of Lent. All right. <laughs> so it's like you got a ways to go. It's like over. It's just now half. I don't know. Okay. Go- I, just, I just trying to do the thing. And going well. Show up. I'm like I don't know what's going on today, <laughs> but let's find out. Yeah, it's going well. Good. Wednesday was a fun service. It was like a really long, long service. Three hours. How many services a week are there? Two. Two. Midweek and Sunday. So there's like Wednesday vespers and then Sunday morning before liturgy there's a matin service which is like an hour and then there's liturgy and then oftentimes there's a friday morning matins matins which is like a kind of like a prayer okay service and then also a lot of times there's a thursday liturgy and then sometimes (laughs) like the one there was like holy week and it was like 10 days of services every day wow all right. So I, I can't answer the question. I don't know how many services a week there are. <laughs> I think on a normal week, there's four. Okay. All right. That's nice. A lot of options. Yeah, that's, there you go. <laughs> Choice. That's good. Right on. But yeah, wonking along. Other than that, that is my, that is the Steven Torna update of the week. <laughs> nice. I guess I already mentioned my updates. Yes. The interview and the op-ed. Exciting okay. stuff. Did you have an opportunity to try our lovely ring this evening? I did, and it's fabulous. I agree with that. You know, with this nice weather, it kind of makes me want to have these nice, slightly sweet, refreshing drinks Mm -hmm. on the patio wine season. Yeah. (laughs) We are drinking ourselves a Gimlet, one of the classic cocktails. Um, Out of my little uh, bar book, the Ultimate Bar Book, the Comprehensive Guide to Over 1,000 Cocktails by Mitty Helmich. I have a nice little uh, entry here about the gimlet. This is what Mitty says. This classic cocktail was originally conceived by the British Navy as a remedy for avoiding scurvy, combining their ration of gin and lime juice. The name was inspired by a gimlet, end quote the corkscrew-like device used to tap into the lime juice kegs. A key ingredient in the gimlet is Rose's Lime Juice, which is a lime cordial, introduced by Lachlan Rose of Scotland as yet another preventative for scurvy in 1867. In the Long Goodbye, writer Raymond Chandler glamorized the drink for the masses when his character, Detective Philip Marlowe, pontificated on his favorite cocktail. Quote, a real gimlet is half gin and half roses lime juice and nothing else, end quote. The classic recipe from the 1930s Savoy Hotel bar is indeed made of equal parts Plymouth gin and roses lime juice. Of course, there are many variations according to personal preference, from different ratios of gin to lime juice to the addition of water or club soda and, for those who desire fresh Lime juice instead of roses, a teaspoon of sugar, or half a teaspoon of simple syrup. So, this evening we are drinking what is referred to as the Contemporary Gimlet. It's two and a half ounces of gin with half an ounce of roses lime juice uh, garnished with a lime wedge. The classic, as this post paragraph uh, suggested, the traditional one is half and half. Mm. But it's not too bad. I like it. It's great. Is roses lime juice, is that something that's sweetened? 
It or, is. So okay. it's like just sugar, lime juice, and like maybe some spices of some sort. Like the lime cordial. A lot of lime cordials have uh, cardamom. Ooh. Some goodies like that. Homemade lime cordials. Yeah. But like Roses makes the lime, Roses lime juice or the lime cordial. And they also make like um, the grenadine. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, it's very tasty. They've obviously been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. My um my uncle at Easter, which is one of the things that mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to with that dinner, uh, he always we kind of start the the afternoon with his homemade gimlets, Ooh. and uh, he uses Meyer lemons from his garden, and I think he and he definitely sweetens it. He probably just does like a little bit of sugar. Yeah. Um, I think, but yeah, they're just like ginny and lemony, delicious. All right, so as we sip away on these delicious drinks this evening. It is time for us to dive into a new series. As we had mentioned last episode with our news and brews about Ukraine, we are about to start a, I think, three-part, who knows, could be four, but we're shooting for three. Three Three-part series on uh, Ukraine from Basically 1900 to now. So tonight, I think we're going to attempt to briefly kind of review history from, like I said, 1900 to I think 2014 is kind of our goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then next episode of this series, we want to discuss long format kind of what happened in 2014 and then probably... Um, for the last episode, dive into more of probably the politics of what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. So, Ukraine. As I was looking into this week, this week, a lot of history. So, it almost isn't fair to start at 1900. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was reading and uh, listening to a lot of different resources and apparently Herodotus wrote about Ukraine in his book The Histories. So wow. we have ancient Greek talking about Ukrainians and discussing like how they are as a people and, and they were very like ferocious warriors and like all of this crazy history from forty four hundred years ago and all of this crazy stuff and, and Vikings and the Crusades and Constantinople and like all of this stuff that we're not even going to get to touch, which mm-hmm. is so crazy. So sorry, doesn't really feel fair, but we can't make this like a fifty-part series. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I have like a little bit to share context-wise. Like perfect. Let's like, hear it. Just I don't know. Like yeah, very brief, gigantic, broad strokes. Mm-hmm. Um. But I feel like it'll add good context. So the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth seems like a particularly important piece of mm-hmm. Ukrainian history. Um, and so that Commonwealth fought with Russia over the territories of Ukraine and Belarus for like decades yep. uh, in the mid to late 17th century. Many historians say that the origins of modern Ukraine can be traced back to the 17th century Cossack uprising against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And for a period of time, the Cossacks supported Russia because Russia was also fighting the Poles and Lithuanians. But then over time, uh, the Cossacks sort of began to rebel and 
kind of wanted more autonomy from Russia. And of course, the Russians responded with force and sort of subverted the Cossacks and really suppressed like Ukrainian culture and language and banned the peoples of that region from using the Ukrainian language for a period of time, Um, which sort of this back and forth between Russia and Ukraine is obviously still very much it's always seems like it's always been a part of their history and it's obviously still very much part of their present. Right, exactly. And then eventually at the turn of the 19th century, uh, the Russian Empire and the Habsburg Austrian Empire um, were in control of all of the territories that constitute present day Ukraine. And it kind of remained that way until the Russian Revolution in the early 20th century mm-hmm. is my understanding. Cool. Very gigantic broad strokes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll skip it over a lot, but... Well, talking about Poland and conflict there and language and everything like that, mm-hmm. um, in the time between 1900 and 2014, um, the same stuff is going on. Yes. <laughs> the Poles are a part of that history, for sure. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, there is a little bit of history that I saw, like, around 1905 up into like 1917 where Ukraine and again this ties back to our political ideology series the idea of like being a sovereign state and independence and nationality or and, and nationalism was something that was really coming to the forefront of of people's minds during that time mm-hmm. and so 1905 up to 1917 you actually have murmurs of kind of this desire to be a state and you have conflict within Ukraine and attempts to kind of find that national identity, which a lot of people didn't really like, obviously. But then, very important, 1917 comes around and we're thrown into World War One, And that kind of affected things very intensely. So Ukraine was a, uh, a place that has seen a lot of conflict even looking into like previous history way back. It's an un- maybe it's just where it's at. I think that's a big part of it. <laughs> it being a board, a borderland. Yeah, there just yeah. seemed to always be a lot of fighting yeah, going on. Totally. Um, and so from 1918 through 1939, during uh, or in between World War One and World War Two, like it was really bad for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Going through this, it's insane. Just the hell that Ukraine has gone through over. And over and over again. Yeah. We know that Russia in 1917, right as World War I kicks off, the czarist kind of regime collapsed. And that kind of whole system ended, which gave Ukraine an option or the ability to uprise and actually gain independence at that point. <laughs> but they only held on to it for like literally a couple months. Um, and then they would lose it. And then I think they were able to maintain independence for a little bit again. So it was like really shaky, but they definitely got a taste of it right at the start of World War One. In 1914? Uh, 1917. So 1917 through 1920, they kind of had a loose... Well, okay. Independence. Mm-hmm. World, yeah. So I guess that's... Right after, at the end of World War One. Yeah, I. at the end right. of World War One. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, right as the as Russia's going through its communist revolution. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was an opportunity for them to gain independence. But 
1920. After that communist revolution and kind of everything kicks off in Russia, they recapture Ukraine. And now, 1920, Ukraine is under um, absolutely brutal Soviet control. Can can I can I add a couple things yeah. before 1920? Mm-hmm. Just about that super chaotic period between 1917 and 1921. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you as like Russia was having its revolution, Ukraine was having its own revolution. And as you said, it kind of it what was known as the Ukrainian People's Republic emerged. And yeah. like you said, it didn't last very long, unfortunately. But something that's kind of interesting that also relates to our uh, ideology series, the Civil War produced what was known as the free territory of Ukraine, which was an anarchist. I don't want to say state because it wasn't a state, but like an anarchist movement uh, that was interesting. And it actually, it lasted for a bit of time. So, so basically from that civil war, this free territory of Ukraine, the anarchist group emerged then there was the Ukrainian People's Republic and the West Ukrainian People's Republic, which eventually were uh, just consumed by the Soviet Union. To add a little color to just how like horrific things were, Oras Subtently, S-U-B-T-E-L-N-Y, he's a Canadian scholar. He wrote this. He said, quote, in 1919, total chaos engulfed Ukraine. Indeed, the modern history of Europe, no country experienced excuse me, indeed, in the modern history of Europe, no country experienced such complete anarchy, bitter civil strife, and total collapse of authority as did Ukraine at this time. Six different armies, those of the Ukrainians, the Bolsheviks, the Whites, the Entente, which were the French, the Poles, and the anarchists, operated on this territory. Kiev changed hands five times in less than a year. Cities and regions were cut off from each other by the numerous fronts, communications with the outside world broke down almost completely the starving cities emptied as people moved into the countryside in search for food end quote that sounds terrible right mm-hmm. um and then it's kind of interesting the way the the factions broke down um he referenced a group called the whites so there were the reds which were the soviets right and then the white russians the whites yeah. anti anti-communists yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah right and then and then the blacks were the anarchists um, and that was led by another name I'm going to butcher, Nestor Mach- Machno. And the territory was referred to as the Machnovishnya, maybe is how you would pronounce that. And so that existed from 1918 to 1921. And there were roughly 7 million people that lived in that territory. And it was basically protected uh, by his own army, which was known as the Revolutionary Insurgent Army, mm-hmm. which is different than... The other uh, insurgent army. There, there was army, another insurgent army. Which I'm sure we'll get to. During World War II. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, this is different from that. Yeah. And yeah, then as you noted, like eventually the Bolsheviks won out, right? Um, yeah. And they defeated the national government in Kiev and established the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which in 1922 became one of the founding republics of the Soviet Union. And initially, the Soviets made Ukrainian the official language of the government and of the schools uh, in that, in the Ukrainian SSR. Um, But then by the 1930s, the Soviet policy had changed uh, to Russification, as it's known. And so then they like try to stamp out all Ukrainian culture and language. Right. Which, yeah, Stalin was big on that. 
So, yeah, 1920s, Ukraine falls under Soviet control, and at this point, um, Vladimir Lenin is in power. And Lenin, obviously, is not known for his kindness. He's got plenty of blood on his hands. But um, there was a point where Lenin was looking at the situation in Ukraine, part of it being because of all of the different groups within that he he saw that he really needed to kind of take control of it. So he actually implemented kind of a different strategy where he actually tried to encourage and incentivize Ukrainian political leaders to join the party. And so he kind of spent this period of time trying to co-op leftist Ukrainian groups and just slowly kind of chipped away his control across Ukraine, obviously using force but also incentives. But this also was a time where there was other conflict going on. So you had Poland at the same time that was kind of interested in Ukraine. So you had conflict there. And so Lenin and his army, you know, as they were pushing west and kind of consuming Ukraine into the the Soviet sphere, ended up coming into conflict with Poland, kind of ending this stalemate. And so... um, That resulted in a treaty in March of 1921 where Poland, Romania, Soviets, and the Czechs all divvied up Ukraine between the four of them. And so Ukraine, once again, like four years after like their end quote independence, like we're just like not a nation again. Right. Really split up, which is really crazy. And this led to this really weird environment that started to breed, uh, two ideologies you had the soviet national communist communist party and then you also had this weird sect of radical nationalism that started to rise up during this period and that obviously has kind of shaped the whole 20th century yeah in ukraine even as we're seeing today right yeah you can understand why nationalism is so fierce there mm-hmm. yes. given how they've been fighting to have a national identity for like centuries and are constantly thwarted yes so yeah that makes sense and really kind of surrounded by end quote enemies yeah they, they really up to this point like they had no allies they, they had the, you know odd bedfellows or were kind of forced right. to be friends yeah um, enemy of my enemy kind of thing exactly yeah so you know after being split up in 1921 you had the formation and kind of legitimizing of a Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic Party. And they actually are the ones that instigated an agreement between Belarus, the Soviets, and the Trans-Caucasian states to form the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. Right, they're one of the founding members. Exactly. Yeah. So they instigated that, Hmm. one, because they were looking for a way to kind of tie nationalism and, and, and social revolution together mm-hmm. so they could kind of move forward because socialism had, you know, gained control of the country fairly well. And then also they had the position to then give themselves autonomy again. So that was part of the agreement. Like, right, right, right. Hey, we're going to do this. We'll be a part of it, but we're going to be like, independent. We're going to be independent. Again. Yeah, right. Um, little did they know. Little did they know. So <laughs> again... A little win for for Ukraine then. Right. Um, And then next event after that, 1924, you have Lenin who dies. Um, And then, you know, that's a whole other topic. Power grab. 
Stalin. Was he murdered? I should know that, but I don't. Uh, I actually don't know. Anyway, he dies. Stalin gets Probably put right. into place, right? Mm-hmm. And he had a very different view than Ukrainians. He did not think in any way that autonomy could be tied with revolution. Mm. And so he went after that hard. And the other thing that Stalin, um, or the other way that Stalin was an issue for Ukraine is that he was adamant that Ukrainians and Russians were identical, that there was no cultural difference, that they were the same people, mm-hmm. which further leaned into like his motives. Right. And the other thing about Ukraine is that there was a lot of Jewish people in Ukraine and Stalin really did not like Jews. Right. And so all of these things kind of built up and then this, this pressure bomb released and Stalin kind of, I mean, the the full terror of Stalin kind of washed across Ukraine. Yeah, it was kind of like directed at Ukraine specifically for a period of time. Yes. I'll just say real quick that there definitely was this like interesting tension throughout Eastern Europe at that point in time, and maybe mm-hmm. it still exists, um, of a desire for independent be, to become their own nation states, right? Because that was like, the rise and early heyday of the nation state. And a lot of these countries were trying to break away from like the Austro-Hungarian empire, for example, if we go back to world war one and the Slavic states that were under the Austro-Hungarian empire, that was like part of what kicked off world war one is like them trying to like the Serbians trying to like get out from under it. Right. And, but then, so there was this desire to be their own independent Mm -hmm. nation states. And at the same time, there were forces like those of, you know, the Soviets or what would become the Soviets who were advocating for sort of this like pan Slavism or like all the Slavic nations. We all share the same culture and history and yes. therefore we should be like one united thing. The other thing that happened during this point, a few years after Stalin got into power, is that by like the, ni- the time 1930 rolled around, there was massive economic stagnation. In Ukraine, 20% of the population was there. There was a lot of, um, there were tons of factories in Ukraine. So it was a very valuable area that was not producing what the USSR needed. And so Stalin implemented like rapid attempts at modernization, mm-hmm. which is where we get into the collectivization of farmland. So he implemented this ordinance to basically seize land to be government owned and then distribute it to peasants to then farm in an attempt to boost things. Mm -hmm. And as we have mentioned before on the podcast, it just was an absolute disaster. There there was also, um, if I can interject for Mm -hmm. a second, there was also like in the process of doing that, Mm -hmm. there was this massive propaganda campaign to turn basically like poorer farmers against like wealthier quote unquote farmers yes um and and so like there were literally like orders sent out to like kill as many people who have x amount of land as possible you know and i was i saw some old photos in an article that i'll share Mm -hmm. that we can put in the show notes um of of like parades in these little villages with like kids holding banners talking about like hanging, 
you know yeah which is the bourgeois which is very similar to like again this is another topic that i'm hopefully we'll dive into eventually but like looking at post-world war ii like and jewish persecution and like pulchrums and stuff like that mm-hmm. it was basically like pulchrums for peasants um, yeah right. crazy right yeah like target on your head government sanctioned yeah massacres of of different groups mm-hmm. but yeah the middle class like peasantry was the most affected yeah and they were the ones that were revolting like those were the few people that were actually uprising against stalin yeah and so, so stalin sent other peasants and mostly the red army at them and this was all part of his plan to collectivize everything like push them so hard that they'll uprise and then anyone that's a problem deport send to a gulag execute whatever yeah get them out of there yeah i guess that's a way of uh of identifying who's a problem and then i'll just say meanwhile like (laughs) those were also the most productive farmers Mm -hmm. right so that helped contribute to what i'm sure we're about to get to (laughs) exactly and so by 1932 no but by 1932 70 percent of all the peasants were collectivized and they were producing 30% of all the grain that the USSR was using. Wow. Which is pretty insane. But then he took it a little further. And after that 70% quota was met, again, 1932, Stalin then started to implement these ridiculous quotas that he knew were not achievable. That then allowed Soviet law to keep the grain that the peasants were producing until they could meet the quota. Oh, wow. Which then directly led to the starvation of 4 million people. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Um, and fun fact, in 2006, the Ukrainian parliament actually declared officially that that action was um, a premeditated genocide, specifically as an aggression to eradicate Ukrainian people. Yeah. And this is known as the Hol- Holodomor. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, those numbers kind of vary. Um, mm-hmm. I think the your four million number is probably the most accurate. Um, uh, the United Nations declared in two thousand three that seven to ten million people died mm-hmm. in the Holodomor, but like current scholarship says, it ranges somewhere between three point five to five million. Yeah. So yeah, four is probably a pretty accurate right. number. And yeah, unfortunately, it's still debated in some parts of the world whether it was a genocide or not like an intentional genocide Mm -hmm. i think it's pretty obvious that it was but either way it was it was definitely a man-made famine for all the reasons that you just correct right he was withholding yeah it was intentional food from people right yeah Um, yeah and so you know during this time 1937 to 1939 with these quotas that were impossible to meet he then sent out these massive purging campaigns where you hear about like, you know, anyone that was stealing like a grain of rice would be like executed and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. And so between 1937 and 1939, the Ukrainian population fell from 29 million to 26.5 million. And then on top of that, 1938 to 1939, secret police arrested 300,000 people. My God. Who were all like accused of, you know, causing issues or being traitors or whatnot. Yeah. 
and over half of those people were just eliminated. Yeah. By secret police, of course. So good old KGB. Ugh. Yeah. And a lo- I, I had read some anecdotes of um, just like desperately poor, hungry people who resorted to cannibalism. Yeah. Who were then, you know, shot because that was a criminal offense, you know. But mm-hmm. meanwhile, they're like, nobody, they didn't want to do that. They were desperate, you know. Right. And and cannibalism of like, there was one story I read about like, the mother of the family died, and so like the children ate her. Yes, you know, and it's like, can you blame the twelve year old kid from you know? It's just it's the whole thing is like nightmarishly horrific. Yeah, and as far as like you Ukrainians during that time and, and starvation, like numbers I've seen like throughout all of turn of the century through end of world war ii is like six million people starved in ukraine which is insane especially in a place that was like literally the breadbasket of europe mm-hmm. you know yeah like it was entirely man-made yeah like exactly yeah it could have been avoided uh, and you know you know i said this is 1938 to 1939 so this is all happening in the baltic states meanwhile hitler has come to power and the nazis are on the rise and stalin you know knew that there was going to be an imminent invasion and so while this is all going on he's also prepping ukraine to basically be invaded by the nazis and so he's prepping for that in, in, in anticipation can i interject one yeah. other thing something that i read that i thought was kind of interesting and i think it helps point to the notion that this was intentional mm-hmm. uh on stalin's part so after millions of people were starved stalin repopulated the depopulated parts of Ukraine yeah, and did so with Russians. So he like literally took like Russian colonists and like took them in, and predominantly to the Donetsk and Luhansk region, mm-hmm. which will be showing up. is really yeah, interesting, yeah, yeah. right? Like it's the pro-Russian part of Ukraine today. Mm-hmm. And after the Soviets starved millions of Ukrainians in that region, they then put Russians there. So it's just, uh, and and they did the same thing also in, on the Crimean Peninsula, which is obviously like was a critical port. Yeah. And still is. So that's just interesting to me. Yes. There's a legacy there. There's a legacy. And so Ukraine obviously is in the middle of this horrible famine. Millions of people are, are being starved. Hundreds of thousands are being, you know, arrested and murdered. And you know, the Nazis are marching towards them. And I don't know if people really knew what was going on with the Nazis, but the Nazis and Hitler wanted the land in Ukraine. They did not care about the people. Mm-hmm. Hitler specifically viewed the Ukrainians as some sort of subhuman type of race. And then on top of that, any Ukrainian Jews were worse than like the rest of Western Jews, like the lowest tier possible. Mm. And so the Nazis just rolled through Ukraine with one goal to just eradicate everyone. And so, you know, 1941, the Germans invade and they just murder something like 7 million civilians. Wow. And a million Jews in Ukraine. Wow. And so much so that like, They didn't think that Ukrainian Jews were even worth sending to camps to die. Jesus Christ. They would just be shot in place. And, um, you know, there were a lot of Ukrainians that tried to aid their Jewish neighbors. 
and anyone found aiding um, would be killed and their entire family would be killed um, on the spot. And to this day, I think it's something like 2,500 families are recognized by um, Israel as like honorable, you know, whatever, um, which is very, very fascinating. And so it's interesting because... A lot of Ukrainians kind of welcomed the Nazis at first because of everything that was going on. Yeah, they were—they almost thought, oh, you're going to liberate us from these Soviets that are starving us to death. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the Soviets were cruel, but uh, nothing like the Nazis um, in this case. Yeah, I guess it was uh, yeah. not as direct. Yep. <laughs> yep. And, uh, I mean, really, I don't think people realize, like, the Germans went into Ukraine basically to colonize it. They were try- I mean, their, their goal was, like, to colonize subhuman species essentially or how they viewed it yeah Um, eradicate repopulate and they obviously did capture a lot of people which isn't something that they really intended to do and so over 60 percent of people captured ended up dying in captivity which is just it's just hard to even fathom yeah these numbers are so big Mm -hmm. and like it's it almost you become like numb to it because they're so large but i mean those are lives and so the Nazis just destroyed everything in Ukraine. They fought and pushed back the Red Army. And so the Red Army, as they retreated across Ukraine to the east, ended up just scorching everything. Burnt mm-hmm. cities to the ground. They destroyed like nearly 500 factories. And they actually relocated almost 4 million skilled workers back into Russia from Ukraine. So as they were retreating, they were destroying factories and then relocating skilled factory workers back to Russia with them as they were retreating, which is like crazy as well. And then also, (laughs) we can get into this a little bit later too, but like of the so few people that actually ended up surviving work camps from the Nazis and things like that, when they were freed, most of them were considered traitors by the Soviets and sent directly to a gulag. Jesus Christ. Wow. So these like the Ukrainians just have been through hell. Yeah. Over and over and over and over right. again. Fast forwarding a little bit, I think a lot of people have a fairly good understanding of timelines for World War II. Yeah, I'll just say that the 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 Nazis occupied Ukraine from 1941 to 1944. Yep. Is that correct? Okay. Yep. Yeah. And so my next note here is 1943 the Germans are starting to kind of lose the war. And so the Red Army comes in at this point Kiev had been captured by the Nazis. Okay. 1943, uh, November 6, the Red Army actually recaptures Kiev, and then they just get recaptured by their ally, and then Stalin implements reprisals for anyone that he suspects as being disloyal or collaborating with the Germans. Right. And so all these people are deported, and now the Red Army is kind of chasing the Nazis out of Ukraine, and so now they're moving west. And at this point, this is where that other uh, insurgent army pops up. Yes. So, 1943, as the Red Army is pushing back the Nazis, you have the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, which is over 100,000 men strong. I read it was formed in 1942. Maybe oh, in ni- maybe it was formed. Yeah, but then by I guess mm. by 1943, yep. it was actually yes. being, making significant gains or something. And so, okay. this is an insurgent army inside Ukraine that is fighting behind the front line, disrupting Soviet uh, movement, battle plans, actually attacking Soviet army, mm-hmm. and they are funded and given weapons by the Nazis. They're guerrilla warfare. Yes. Yeah. Because um, they're against the Soviet. They're, they're anti 
Soviet. And anti-Pol. Correct. Poles. Poland. And this is why we had mentioned before, like, during World War II in Ukraine, Ukraine was fighting everyone. Right. The Soviets, the Nazis, the Poles, like. Yeah. And they, as we mentioned before, had been fighting the Poles mm-hmm. for centuries. Yes. So these are just, it's just a continuation of mm-hmm. an ancient history, really. Yeah, exactly. And so all of this, like, insurgent movement and stuff like that gave Stalin leverage to be able to meet with FDR and Churchill and actually draw lines for like the country of Ukraine to kind of get all of that under control. Do we, uh, do you know, I don't know this, do you know if the territory that they drew up was similar to what had been formed when Ukraine became in like 1920, whatever, when it became the Soviet Republic? Was it a similar boundary line? I actually don't know. I, I would wonder. love to actually see some maps. Yeah, maps like would some be really interesting. Century maps. Yeah. Uh, because with all of the weird, like you know, with Poland and the Czechs, and yeah, um, I think even Romania owned part of Ukraine at some point. Yeah, and when the Nazis invaded, mm-hmm. there the what was considered Ukrainian territory expanded westward like into yeah. Poland for a period of time. Yeah, an evolution of the map would be really interesting. Yeah. And so just to wrap up World War II cuz there's a lot still going on, but you know, after this meeting with FDR and Churchill, he kind of draws the lines of what he wants Ukraine to look like. Mm-hmm. Shortly after the Nazis are defeated, Japan's defeated, um and there's surrender. Stalin then implements a campaign where he starts to basically relocate people in Ukraine all across Russia. Most of like the anti-Soviets got sent to Siberia um, in an attempt. Well, his plan was basically to uh, combat nationalism. Mm, Right. Yeah. Then the USSR wanted to ensure that Ukraine was a founding member to the UN so they could right. then be given immediate legitimization as their own state. Yeah. After he had moved all the people around. And made sure the and people sure he could that, control were right. there. Yeah. Exactly. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James, for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People. And so then other things like I plant fruit-bearing shrubs and trees in my local park because no one takes care of the park. So I trimmed the hedges and pulled out dead shrubs and replaced them with blueberries and salvias and other things like that. Wow, that's so cool. What like what got you started on that? Like you just noticed a park not being taken care of and you're like, I know someone who could take care of that. And it's yep. me. <laughs> yep. Wow. Now, we live a block away from this park that's it's small enough that the local parks district doesn't even list it on its website, which I thought was really strange. Oh, yeah. 
but like it has a, a sign and like landscaping stuff there and right. so like we've lived here for a couple of years and like noticing over the years that just like no one takes care of this stuff there's like they don't trim the hedge that's there there is a walnut tree growing up through it which i'm doing my best to save and it is doing well so we've got a couple of volunteers there and it's just crazy to me that no one has ever like seen you do this and like what oh yeah, because I don't do it under the cover of night or anything. Like, <laughs> like no one from the city is like, it's why like are you doing it? And now back to our conversation. Um, can I make another note about the the um insurgent Ukrainian insurgent army? Please, I will. I do think that hopefully in our 2014 conversation or the last episode, we'll we'll go back to that. Yes, and dive a little bit into. Yeah. What that means. But yeah. And it's modern legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So as you said, it was sort of a a guerrilla warfare machine that uh, often aligned with the Nazis to fight the Soviets. And like eventually, I think like officially it sort of condemned both communism and fascism. But it remained like fiercely nationalistic and frankly like racist. And they were not fond of Jews and they were not fond of the Poles in particular. And they eventually conducted ethnic cleansing against the Poles in German occupied Poland. And they were known to do some pretty horrific things. They were they killed indiscriminately men, women and children. Um, They were known to like torture people before mm-hmm. they killed them like pretty gruesome like public stuff and the total numbers are between 50,000 and 100,000 poles were killed in massacres conducted by the army by the insurgent army uh between 1943 and 1945 mm-hmm. so as the nazis and the soviets are killing each other and killing everybody in their way this insurgent army is fighting Both of them sort of sometimes working with the Nazis and then also kind of doing their own thing, killing Poles predominantly. And then someone that this name will definitely come up in our other episodes. um, But I get I've never actually heard his name pronounced. Stepan Bandera led the Ukrainian insurgent army. And he's sort of known as a Nazi collaborator. And he was sort of one of the theorists behind the organization of Ukrainian nationalists or OUN, which Mm -hmm. still has a legacy today. And so he was just, I mean, he led them in their ethnic cleansing, right? So he's sort of a nasty guy. Um, Interesting little tidbit I learned that I had no idea about this. So there's uh, an author named Stephen Durrell. I believe he's British. And he wrote a book called MI6 Inside the Covert World of Her Majesty's Secret Intelligence Service. And apparently... Talking James Bond here. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, uh, the OUN, or the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, that uh, Stepan Bandera was, like, the lead of, something called OUNB. So So I guess they tried to create, like, a reformed version of it, was, quote, reformed in 1946 under the sponsorship of mi6 mm. so i they did like, not know that i didn't either and Holy i read this the other moly. day and my mind was blown and that organization had been receiving 
support from MI6 since the 1930s. Because they were fighting the Soviets. Holy moly. Yeah. And then eventually they like, when the Nazis showed up, like they aligned with the Nazis strategically. But MI6 was still like supporting them. Because that makes a lot of sense why Stalin, right after World War II, like tried to get Ukraine's production up instantly because he predicted that there would be essentially like a World War III immediately after. Where where the oh. USSR would have to fight the capitalist? Oh yeah, right. Like yeah, yeah. He yeah, totally. Right. They all knew. They all were like, "We're about to like go to war ourselves." Yeah, exactly. Once this is over. And you wondered. You just wonder. Like obviously, he had incredible. Yeah, I, I say that loosely, but honestly, like incredible secret police that were everywhere. And he yeah, probably, he knew a lot. Yeah, he knew what was going on. Right. They and all so, knew what yeah, each other were doing. Yeah. yeah, totally. Well, and that's why. Um, General Patton, he was one of the few people on the American side anyway who was like, right, that was we like shouldn't we, fin- right away. This war isn't over. Mm-hmm. We should just keep on. We should f- now turn to the Soviets and we didn't do that. And then the Cold War happened. Um, so anyway, and then apparently there was another faction of Bandera's organization called, uh, which was led or associated with Mikola Lebed, um, which I think is like another, like a similar Bandera character. Yeah. And that was associated with the CIA. So the CIA was also like kind of doing what MI6 was doing and like, you know, providing intelligence and like arms. Yeah. Money. We do the same thing today. Um, And anyway, but then also at the same time, Bandera was himself a target of uh, the counterintelligence corps, which was like kind of. I don't think that exists anymore, but it was like a precursor. Mm-hmm. It was like an like a American Army intelligence service, basically. So the whole thing's fucking messy and murky. And then you wonder, it's like, were our intelligence services, like, how much were they keeping from the military during World War II? You know? I don't know. Right, just like, a lot of this worse. is just, like, really, like, messy, and there's, like, overlap that doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah. But anyways... So that's a weird tidbit. Uh, okay, so uh, I'm just gonna dive through like the you know like the Cold War because okay the Cold War in Ukraine is not really a thing like per se. That was obviously during that time other things were going on in other parts of the world. So this isn't necessarily relevant to our conversation. But by the end of World War II, something like eight million people died in Ukraine. You had 10 million displaced homeless people. The country had lost upwards of 50% of its entirety of wealth. 80% of its industry had been destroyed. And so, you know, 1947, that time period, their attribution to economy was down like 75%. Wow. And this is what I had said, like, Stalin knew that was going on. And it kind of was the, the mecca of production before. And so he had to ramp it up thinking that there was going to be an imminent, like, immediate war with the West. West. So there was a bunch of money pumped into Ukraine, and it was rebuilt, and it sucked for Ukraine. We'll kind of skip over that a little bit. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. I have one tidbit to add. Go for it. Uh, So after Stalin died in 1953... Sorry if I'm no, stepping no. on one of your notes. Uh, so that was my next note. 1953, okay. Stalin dies. Yeah. So then Nikita, everyone clap. <laughs> yay! So then uh, Nikita Khrushchev, which was he led Ukraine, mm-hmm. then became the head of he succeeded Stalin and became the head of the yes. Soviet Union. Um, and he's the one who 
busted off his shoe and slammed on the desk and said, we will crush you. I'm pretty sure. Oh, maybe. Right? He was the one that yeah. was like, we're going to stop purges for political enemies. <laughs> and then like instantly vamped up purges against the Orthodox Church. Oh, yeah. That's before they eventually were like, we need to co-opt and utilize the Orthodox Church right, for our yeah, purposes. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, but one little thing that I thought was important to know about that. So when Nikita Khrushchev became the head of the Soviet Union and left Ukraine, he sort of like allowed and tolerated like a Ukrainian cultural revival mm -hmm. where like some they were allowed to sort of like have their language and like remember their culture a bit. And in 1954, the Ukrainian Republic expanded to the south with the transfer of Crimea from Russia. So Nikita Khrushchev yes. facilitated the transfer of Crimea, the, that whole peninsula, to Ukraine from Russia. Which is very important. Yes. 1953, I mean 1955, Crimea was part of Russia. No. You were right the first time. 1953. Oh, then 1953. 1954, yeah, they gotcha, transferred it. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, and then they transfer it to Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't like that. Right. Keep that in mind, guys. Yeah. A lot of people didn't like that. Yeah. I don't really have many notes on his reign, honestly. That I have was... no notes between then and 2004. And then I have, <laughs> so... I, I just have 1985. We have uh, Gorbachev gains power. Chernobyl goes off. Mm. Yeah. Which pretty much immediately affected 2,000 settlements and 2 million people because of the nuclear fallout. Mm-hmm. And then because of water pollution, something like 30 million other people were directly affected by Chernobyl. And they didn't really do like the government in, in Moscow was more concerned about like w protecting their reputation with the rest of the world than they were about actually like yes. addressing what there was, was happening. There was literally in Kiev that day that it happened. There was like a really important in quote, really important like military parade that was going on. And they claimed that they would not stop the parade. <laughs> and so they had a parade and just like let it fucking melt down. Yeah. yeah. And so it was this huge thing that they then spent forever just trying to cover up. Right. Meanwhile, millions of people are being affected by it. Right. Insane. We'll just kind of brush over, just brush over that. Right. Uh, by, yeah. the, by the late, by the late 1980s, the Ukrainians became uh, increasingly dissatisfied with the rule from Moscow. And in 89, the RUKH, which is the Ukrainian people's movement for uh, restructuring was formed. And in 1990, demonstrations were held. Um, that's where students in Kiev went on a hunger strike. Mm, okay. And then right after that, we have the collapse and breakup of the Soviet Union. Yeah. In 1991. And so the year I was born. And so I actually think that's like <laughs> almost like, I don't know. But maybe that's why I care about these things. Um, but yeah, so then, so that's like, I mean, known, but valuable to think about like ukraine has only been an independent sovereign nation as it is today since 1991 remember every time that they had tasted it it was like for literally like less than a year yeah totally so immediately after that the world was kind of thrown into like a non-communist world yeah. and um the pain of being thrust into like a capitalistic marketplace is very difficult mm -hmm. and so ukraine faced uh inflation massive economic de decline for years and years um which i think it's worth noting like 
massive economic decline from an already very impoverished state. Yes. Right? Like, people were very poor. Correct. Under communist rule. And then... Yeah. And I think another important point to note regarding that is that when you don't have sort of the fundamental institutions that we've talked about and that Mm -hmm. we really highlighted in our like wrap up of the ideology series, when you don't have those institutions in place, it's really hard to transition to a free society and be prosperous uh, because it just leaves so much room for corruption. Yes. When you don't have those like basic rights and principles in place to safeguard against corruption. Correct. And after the fall in 1991 and their independence, like that's what they were facing mm-hmm. was even worse conditions, as you just mentioned. But also we're talking about like wanting prosperity and democracy partially and then another part not wanting that. And mm-hmm. so they were battling horrible corruption, yeah, state control, yeah. And, 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 and I think deliberate stalls for economic reform and privatization because there was such a deep hold still in that area that I think a lot of people were like, no, we don't, we don't want privatization. We don't want all of this. And so yeah. they're fighting this. Well, think of the people in the kind of Soviet style institutions that were in place and that were benefiting from it. Right. Like mm-hmm. they didn't want to relinquish that. No. So they found a way to like twist reform in their favor which inevitably meant that like power was still concentrated correct and uh yeah and it just like the same kind of like corruption and abuse that was prevalent throughout the soviet era continued it just continued in a slightly different form again because there were no there were no checks in place to prevent that, right? Exactly. They weren't starting from scratch and building a new nation. They were, you know, officially they might be free from communism, but its legacy was still very much a part of them. And so the last thing, I think, before we can dive into like that 2004 conflict that you want to talk about, you know, 1991, you're going through all of this turmoil, further turmoil, I don't know what happened in between 1991 and 1994, really. Because what I didn't realize is that they were a major nuclear power at that point. They were the third largest nuclear power in the world between 1991 and 1993. With a corrupt government, no money, like all of this nasty inner dealings. And then in 1994, they decide to give up all of their inherited Soviet nukes. Completely knocking them out of a nuclear power. In exchange for financial aid? It then opened them up to financial aid yeah. as part of the agreement. Yeah. And they almost overnight became like the second largest funded country by the United States. Yeah. It's very interesting. We wanted to control that. Correct. I mean, that makes, I mean, we've, yeah, we've convinced a lot of countries to give up their nukes. <laughs> right. In exchange for USAID. But, right. and since then, we've just been dumping money yeah. into them. Yeah. Which we'll talk about more. Yes. In later episodes. Yes. 
But everything that's happening now, guys, everything that we're ha talking about now, is I hope you guys are starting to see, like, the conflict currently in, in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia goes back real far. Mm -hmm. Like, we're talking close to 100 years now. Right. Um, especially with things like... And there's like, a whole other history before yes, that we haven't, exactly. you know, that we didn't have time to um, touch upon. So it gets complicated real quick. Yeah. Well, and these territorial disputes too, mm -hmm. right? Like Crimea being coming a part of what is now Ukraine only in 1953 mm -hmm. or 1954. Like that is, you know, that's recent history. And then the way these places were depopulated and repopulated strategically and how that changes the culture and the makeup of those communities and what that mm -hmm. means for voting and what that means for uh, allegiances. and Correct. Yeah. And the Crimea thing is important because we didn't talk about this, but like because of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia, they had a long-term basically like rental agreement for ports in Crimea mm. because it was the only warm water ports that Russia had. Right. That... And that means that, like, it's one of the only ports they have that doesn't freeze over at some point during the year and render anything there completely useless. Mm -hmm. It was a very important thing. And that I think that relationship's still there. Yeah, I mean... Well, I mean, obviously, but, like, they, they still they had bases there, right? Like, the U.S. does in other countries. Like, Yeah. Again, it just gets messy. But it's, a, it's a very desirable place. Mm -hmm. And I also had read that it's also, like, all during, like, the Soviet era was a wildly popular place for the oligarchs to vacation. Still is. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah, know that. totally. Yeah. yeah. It's where they have like, you know, like big bougie. summer homes yeah. and stuff oh. like that. Yeah. Oh. Well, and like up until uh 2014 when they annexed Crimea, when mm -hmm. Russia annexed Crimea, um and obviously that's still the case now, but like when it was a part of Ukraine, as you just said, they had an agreement where like Russia still had its military like or its navy docked there yeah like they had a huge navy presence there like that that is where they were docked right mm -hmm. so it you know it in many ways was very much still russia's uh in practice maybe not in official terms until they annexed it again yeah we'll get we'll get into that more in the next episode Yes. Do we want to talk about the orange revolution i think we should because i don't okay. i don't i really don't know much about it i just got to learn a little bit about it and that was the election with yushchenko yes yushchenko and yukovich yes so a little tiny bit of background so the controversy of the 2004 election in ukraine and what became the orange revolution and i'm and like again like with all of these topics there's a ton and we could do an entire series on that and we're not doing that so this is going to be an abbreviated history of it that's my disclaimer. But anyway, um, so a little bit of context. That whole controversy was sort of the groundwork was laid for that in 2000 when then President uh, Leonid Kuchma was accused of ordering the murder of a prominent journalist. I will butcher his name as well. Uh, I think it's Georgi Gongadez, Gongadze. I'm American, so I apologize. <laughs> um, but uh, so he was a dissident journalist. He started his own uh, media site that basically was dedicated to highlighting the corruption of the Ukrainian government. 
and there was a lot of corruption. And um, so he sort of had he became like an enemy of the state and had a target on his back. And uh, President Kuchma was accused of ordering his murder. He was found decapitated. So he was murdered pretty brutally. He was kidnapped uh, and then several days later turned up decapitated. So Kuchman tried, you know, obviously denied it for a while. And then like, I don't know exactly what the period of time was. It all happened within 2000. So like weeks or months later, what is known as the cassette scandal happened. And basically recordings turned up of Kuchma uh, basically ordering this journalist killing like there were recordings of him on the phone talking about it, I making the order. So, I, I was a stupid six-year-old in 2000. And, like, I wish, like, learning about this, it's like, this is why I tweeted the other day that I'm, like, dreaming about being stuck in Soviet. <laughs> there's, it's. Yeah. There's so much there. There's so much. I know. I know. And, like, everything's just, like, corrupt. And, like, everything is a conspiracy and it's all true. Right. Everything's a conspiracy and it's all true. Right. And yeah. it's overwhelming. It's, it is very overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. And I mean, every nation and every people, you know, they've got their, you know, all peoples have their complicated histories. Ukraine is a particularly <laughs> complicated and grim and really dark. And like the things that you don't even imagine, like you can't even imagine what happened, like have happened there, you know. Yes. Um, and the problem is, too, when you start talking, I, I'm getting a little bit off. That's It'll fine. only be yeah. 30 seconds. It's fine. When you get into like things like how complex the Middle East is, you then realize that like Russia's part of that. Yeah. And like everything drags you back to Russia. Yeah. And yeah. the United States. Well, right. <laughs> right. And that is like, then when you really like, like pull out, it's like, oh, this has been a fucking co- power conflict by these two great powers yes. for a while. Um, anyway, so, (laughs) (laughs) so the president had this major scandal and basically people were, uh, fed up and he was incredibly unpopular. (laughs) Um, and, 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 and it's, it sort of stoked this mood of revolution in the country. And so then when the 2004 election rolled around, it was like a highly charged environment. As you, you mentioned Torna, uh, the there were other candidates but they were like never going to pull the numbers that the main two were so it was really between uh the both named victor uh victor yanukovych and victor yushenko yes. uh so yanukovych was the prime minister during president kuchma's administration and they both were more pro russian broad strokes but they're more pro russian um and then yushenko was more pro western and more pro eu Mm-hmm. And that is, again, a division that will come up in 2014 in our next episode and obviously today. Um, so uh, Yanukovych's team um, and the outgoing president uh, were accused of using their control of the government and sort of state apparatus to intimidate um, Yushchenko and his supporters. In September 2004, Yushchenko was mysteriously poisoned. Yes. Um, under, you know, mysterious circumstances, but I think it's especially the more we've learned about like Putin and how he operates, like just poisoning, you know, 
dissidents, even when they're like having tea in London, like you've been poisoned and you're in conflict with Russia. Like it's a pretty good guess that the Russians poisoned you. So anyways, so he was poisoned. He survived um, and he continued to campaign. uh, But it totally it like dramatically changed his appearance and he still has the scars of it on his face uh he's all pocked and i mean really like disfigured it's actually kind of horrific he was like a handsome man then he like i mean it's like a noticeable like disfigurement anyway Mm. so he was poisoned uh while he was campaigning and then continued to campaign so then they have their election the initial election didn't determine a clear winner because neither of them won over 50 percent of the vote so that meant it automatically went to a runoff the so protests at that point had broken out on sort of the eve of the runoff election the uh part of what's uh sparked the protests was the fact that the exit polls gave um yushenko an 11 percent lead but official results gave uh the election to yanukovych so by three percent so basically, like, yeah, there was there was a big discrepancy between what polling said the public wanted and what the official quote unquote ballot, you know, results said. Um, so everybody obviously like didn't trust the outcome and thought it was corrupt. And so, uh, leading up to the runoff election, it was very tense. Uh, Yanukovych supporters claimed that Yushchenko's connections to Ukrainians' media explain that disparity because there was there at that point there were you know increasingly uh sort of anti-establishment uh media outlets that yushenko was was tied to and so they sort of said like well you've manipulated the media and that's why the polling says you won um and then but then yushenko's team was able to to find evidence of electoral fraud and that was enough to sort of convince people that um, Yanukovych was playing dirty. Um, and so, so the protests took place. They were, they were peaceful, but they were huge. And this is in the wintertime, like it's freezing. At one point, they saw as many as a million people in the streets of Kiev, like a ton of people turned out for this. It's called the Orange Revolution because they sort of adopted orange as the color of the protests. And then the pro-government people adopted blue as their color. And then on December 3rd, 2004, Ukraine's Supreme Court finally broke the political deadlock and decided that due to the scale of the electoral fraud, uh, it was just impossible to establish um, credible results of the election, of the runoff. And so they ordered a revote of the runoff. And then pro-Western Yushchenko like, won that round and became president. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting, just to put all of it into like a timescale perspective this was the fourth presidential election in ukraine's history since they became independent um and really like the fourth presidential presidential election in like ukraine as a sovereign nation state's entire history so it's a very young nation right and then another thing that i want to note again that was a very brief overview of the whole thing the u.s had uh a pretty they're pretty involved (laughs) in this yes yes so 
American. D- so I don't yeah. know enough, but this this revote was internationally monitored, correct? Yes, it was. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that that's really good context. Yes. Add. Yes, it was international at that point because of the massive protests, because of all the you know claims of electoral fraud. This had gotten international attention, um, and then there were uh, sort of NGOs from the West mm-hmm. that were involved. I don't love it. In making sure <laughs> that it was legitimate. So, yeah. So American NGOs that were in partnership with the U.S. government sort of helped seed, stoke, and support the color revolution was yeah. what they started. So then these revolutions, I need to make that point. So this was the Orange Revolution. And then there were very similar res- revolutions that took place in other Eastern former Soviet bloc states in the region. Um, They all had their own color. So they collectively became known as the color revolutions. And so Putin talks about that today. Right. And so uh, the U.S. was involved in revolutions in Serbia, Georgia, Ukraine and Belarus. The one in Belarus failed and they still have the same dictator that they tried to oust. And they are still pro-Russia. And they are, yes. And all the other are pro-West. Yes, yes. Um, and so some of the the groups that were involved in this was the Democrat Party's National Democratic Institute, the Republican Party's International Republican Institute, really creative names, um, the U.S. State Department, and USAID. Were, those were all the main agencies involved in these sort of grassroots campaigns also Freedom House NGO and uh, George Soros's Open Society Institute were all heavily involved in providing funding primarily, but also like experts who knew how to do exit polling and knew mm-hmm. how to do campaigns and knew how to organize and knew how to like make sure freezing protesters like had resources to be able to stay out on the streets when it's like sub-zero you know and wild logistics that people don't understand oh crazy fucking logistics like yeah like some random u.s citizen can like fund and organize and support a foreign revolution yeah yeah Fun stuff. <laughs> totally. And, and you know, and then it's like, you know, I see both sides. Like, that is foreign intervention. That is big time foreign intervention. On the flip side, you know, they're a, a former client state that is trying to get out from under the thumb of a dictator. And they, you know, or, or maybe dictator is too strong of a word, but a puppet uh, and they're trying to get out uh, under the thumb of their former, you know, like oppressor of Russia. And this is just a pro democracy movement. And so democracies are going to support it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's an understandable perspective from both sides, I suppose. But, uh, yeah. So we had a hand in that and they had a, pro-Western government for a period of time and then we're not going to, we're going to touch upon this in our next episode, but it sort of has volleyed back and forth between pro-Russia, pro-Western governments in Mm -hmm. Ukraine. 2014 is going to be our next episode and what we were just discussing is like 2006 
2004. Yeah. Now I do know there was a little bit of stuff going on in between where there were some, yeah. <laughs> there were some other elections that also had foreign, I don't know if gatekeeping is the right word, but then were criticized by Ukrainians, okay. or at least one side of the Ukrainian government, saying that Western observers uh, were using government resources to favor certain candidates. Sure. Which I think is fair and true. Yeah, totally. Right? So there was conflict there. Yeah. And then you have Yankovic, yeah, basically kind of switching slightly and not going forward with some EU trade negotiations. Well, that leads into the whole Euromaidan yes, thing. Yes. Yeah. And then kind of shifting and becoming a little bit more pro-Russian yeah. in his foreign policy. Well, so, yeah. So, right. Which led to more protests. Yeah. So, so that leads into that leads into what happens in 2014, which we'll okay. talk about next I, this time. This was like 2012 is, I yeah. think, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Or 2013, maybe. Yes. Okay. So, leading into then the mm-hmm. massive uprising in 2014. Yes. But... Uh, yeah, so uh, Viktor Yanukovych loses this round in 2004. He eventually becomes president. Right. And then, yeah, that then sets the stage for more meddling and uprising in 2014. Wonderful. Yeah. So that was like fast and furious, guys. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on. I left out like so much stuff just from World War One and World War Two, As you can obviously tell we just kind of i don't know skipped over like 40 years of cold war era you know the cold war yeah 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 (laughs) we don't know how to talk about that yeah um (laughs) which yeah like i said it's like everything is just like an endless rabbit hole when it comes to it is yeah like soviet like red wall stuff Mm -hmm. like or red curtain stuff but Red wall. Oh, red wall. Yeah, yeah. Um, iron curtain. Iron curtain. Iron curtain. Red, whatever. Red wall is a book about little talking animals. Okay. Different. Different. Um, iron curtain. So, yeah. Fast and Furious. There's so many good resources out there. I know we're going to link some. We've got a couple great podcasts that were super interesting. You guys should definitely listening. listen to a couple articles that I would suggest reading. But I think this primes us for a good position next time to really dive into, I guess, what will be 2012 to 2022, kind of 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the next episode is probably going to bring us down some rabbit holes, but it'll be worth it. And uh, I'm excited about that. Yeah. And I'll just echo what you said. That was fast and furious. But I think the purpose we initially set out saying we want to talk about the Ukraine conflict that's mm-hmm. happening today. Therefore, we need some foundation. Correct. So what we're doing in these next this episode and the next episode is laying that foundation, which will pro- allow us to go into more detail, I believe, when we get to present day. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, you could have had like a 10-part series on 1919 to nineteen. 19- 22 alone right like or 1917 to 1922 alone so right exactly i mean it's just it's a lot right so we have to be kind of selective but i think the main point at least specifically what i talked about is like to understand the kind of people that are in ukraine and the amount of turmoil that they've gone through in the last hundred years as well as their relationship to the soviets in russia 
as well as their encounters and relationship with the Nazis, as well as, you know, their relationship with Allied forces during World War II. All of these things are very, very important into understanding the current conflict and understanding Russia's perspective on it, understanding Ukraine's perspective on it, and then within Ukraine, trying to understand the just multitude of opinions within Ukraine. And I don't know exactly where we're going to go, but within Ukraine, I think we need to address like the pro-Russia-Ukraine argument, which we touched a little bit on here with kind of the placement of Russian-speaking people in certain areas and, and kind of that brief history. We have to talk about the pro-West Ukraine, which is going to tie into the 2014 argument and you know 2012 to 2016 or whatever. And then um, we need to talk about like the Nazi movement within Ukraine, which people just seem to be completely glossing over or making a very um, minimal deal of. Yeah, they minimize it. I think that's very unwise. And so we're going to definitely dive into that. Uh, probably not next episode, but the episode after. Mm -hmm. um, these are things that need to be talked about that I'm just, I frankly don't see people talking about. Right. And that's why we talked about Bandera tonight. And yes. Yeah. There's, exactly. There's all of this uh, context mm -hmm. that helps understand, that helps color what is happening today. Yes. Yeah. So hopefully that's helpful. As always, thank you guys for listening. Hop on Twitter. Hop on Instagram. Give us a listen. Share with your friends. And we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers. And welcome to No Normal People. This is a show where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. You know how there's like famous people in the world that are known very well and how they go on podcasts? Yeah. Well, we don't do marketable that. Marketable names and yeah, audience. Buzzwords, and, buzz yeah, names. Social following. Yeah. And, John yeah. Buzz. And, well, we interview people like your Uncle Terry, who collects model trains. Because he's normal. We'll even interview you, even if you don't have the cool trains that your uncle has. You can email us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com or visit our show page on www.highline.network to sign up to be on the show. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.